Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The 13th century uh, spiritual fable, The Quest of the Holy Grail, tells the story of the Knights of the Round Table who go on a search for the cup of Christ. And there's a scene in it where the famed and respected Sir Lancelot, maybe the greatest knight of them all, is traveling through a dark forest. And he finds a mysterious chapel with candles burning on the altar. Now he falls asleep in the night, and in his slumber he barely notices that the Holy Grail itself has presented itself, borne by invisible angels. He almost wakes up, but his heart has been hardened, and it's been clouded over by his attachment to earthly things, to his image, to his prestige, to his good looks, together with his sins and his spiritual laziness and his ignorance of where he is, so he sleeps on. Meanwhile, another unnamed knight comes along who's afflicted with a terrible sickness. This knight struggles and prays, and he is granted the blessing of touching the Holy Grail, and he is healed. The Grail departs, and Lancelot wakes up, and he finds that he has missed his chance. And a nearby hermit rebukes him for his blindness and his sloth. And it's been a moment of revelation. And what has been revealed here is that Lancelot really didn't love God more than anything else. And this story has applications for us today. In the epistle, St. Paul Paul gives us this amazing promise. That when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. That Christ will be all in all. And this appearance will either be a great blessing for us, like for the knight who was granted to touch the grail, or it will be a source of great pain and remorse like for Lancelot. It's both a wonderful promise, but also a sober warning. And the gospel will tell us how we can prepare for this. But we start by looking at the epistle with this apocalyptic vision of St. Paul's. Let's put it into an orthodox interpretation. Orthodox professor and author Andrew Louth says that the ultimate state of human beings after the final judgment is to behold the glory of God's love. Some will experience this as joy and the fulfillment of all their desires, and others will experience this as a punishment. St. Maximus the Confessor says, What is punishment other than the deprivation of what one longs for? According, therefore, to the analogy of desire, those who long for God rejoice, and those who long for sin are punished. Those who obtain what they long for rejoice in accordance with the measure of their longing, and those who fail suffer in accordance with the measure of theirs. We are told to put to death what is earthly in us so that our experience of the life unfolding, the unfolding reality, will be one that brings us peace and joy rather than one that brings us grief, anguish, and regret, or as the scriptures say, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have our work to do. We have to prioritize the acquisition of holiness to hold fast to Christ rather than to the passions and the things of this life. And the essential question is, do we desire the things of the old nature, the satisfaction of our sinful urges or our self-love, more than the things of the new nature, the virtues which lead us to Christ himself? So we look to the gospel then, and we have 10 lepers who in their illness were not only suffering terribly, but were cut off from their families and from society. And here, standing before them, is Christ himself, their creator, and the lover of mankind, who was born that they might draw close to him, be healed of their physical disease, but more than that, to be entirely filled with his presence 
and receive inner renewal. But once they are healed, they miss the opportunity. They miss this chance, like Lancelot missing the chance to behold the Holy Grail. Why? Two things. Firstly, the distraction of their earthly blessings. Once they were healed, we can imagine that they wanted nothing more than to head back into town, catch up with their friends, see people, get back into life. And this is often us in a wealthy country like Australia, when God gives us material blessings. We take so much for granted. We have food every day. We have access to medicines and doctors. We have freedom to worship and follow our religion, access to education and to work, and so on. And often, as long as we have these things, you know what? We're happy. We're fed. We're healthy. We're entertained. Let's not forget that one. What else could we hope for, really? Well, like the nine who were content to receive their temporal healing and their temporal blessings. Now, the blessing, in this case the healing, was given so that they would look past the gift, right, to the giver. And Christ often does this in his ministry. He's not going to come in in, a, in an amazing show of power, overwhelming people so that they're going to fall down at his feet. He'll do things gently. He feeds the multitude so that they might desire the greater food. He makes the blind see so that they would yearn to see God with the eyes of their hearts. He heals the lame that they might walk in his footsteps. The risk that Christ takes in these kinds of actions, however, is that people won't want more. They won't want the greater, right? When Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people follow him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he knows that they're not following him to seek him out better. He says, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And maybe we can understand the figure of the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's brother, brothers, Karamazov, when he tells Christ that all people care about is to have their stomachs filled. People don't really worry about the heavenly bread. They are content with the earthly the second thing that we see in these nine lepers is related to the first, and that is that they could have simply just forgotten Christ, right? And uh, forgetfulness and its associated vices of ignorance and laziness, we might not think is so bad in the spectrum of, you know, the sins and the passions. However, St. Mark, the ascetic in the first book of the Philokalia, holds forgetfulness, ignorance, and laziness as chief among the passions, because he says that they hinder any good that we could do and instead open the door to passions of every kind. Our fallen minds often tend towards oblivion and forgetfulness. As soon as we are healed, we forget what it was like to be sick and how thankful we would have been in our sick state for even just a slight improvement. As soon as we're fed, we forget what it felt like to be hungry. As soon as we're forgiven, we forget how we've acted towards the people whom we've hurt. And as soon as our needs are met, we forget he who satisfied them. Now, often even extreme experiences don't give us lasting lessons. The Danish photojournalist Daniel Rye Ottersen was captured by ISIS and held in captivity for 400 days. And I heard him uh, in an interview, and he's one of the fortunate ones who was released after his family and friends raised an enormous ransom to secure his liberty. And he says that when he was in captivity and things were so dire and so terrible and he 
wasn't sure whether he was going to live. He recalls that even the slightest improvement in his circumstance filled him with so much thankfulness. Things like not having his handcuffs on all the time just made him feel so, so thankful that he could go to the toilet when he wanted, that he could have a drink of the dirty water there whenever he wanted. And he describes it as such an amazing uh, elevation in his situation. Of course, it wasn't. He was still in jail with ISIS, right? But his experience of it was one of such gratitude. However, he says that when he came back to Denmark several months later, he recalls that it was within days that he was once again getting angry at people in the supermarket line for cutting in. And isn't that just so typical of what we're like as human beings? Really what happens is that we gravitate towards ingratitude. And in our Judeo-Christian tradition, the, uh, the archetypal example of this is the Israelites in the desert who time and time again forget what God did for them in Egypt and are not thankful for all the great things he's done for them. In this way, we can see that these nine lepers continue this pattern of ingratitude that had been set all those centuries before. And the Samaritans showing gratitude is one of the many examples in the scriptures of God welcoming people from other backgrounds into the family. So the Samaritan who comes back shows us what we need. Firstly, remembrance of God rather than forgetfulness. He doesn't forget who he is when he is blessed or who God is doing the blessing. He doesn't become dazzled or distracted by his temporary blessing, but looks beyond it to see the gentle and the humble giver. He responds as Christ wants all people to respond when they are blessed by him, to come running to him in love and gratitude. He acknowledges that his healing is from God, and these qualities enable him to draw near to Christ. Whereas the text tells us that the other nine stood at a distance, the Samaritan falls right next to Christ at his feet. With these things, gratitude and remembrance, he receives not just physical healing, but spiritual, the forgiveness of his sins. Christ tells him, your faith has made you well. In the Greek, this is literally has saved you. And the same verb here is the one that Jesus uses for the woman who anoints his feet, for the woman with the issue of blood who reaches out to Christ, and for the blind beggar who cries out to him. So we see then that gratitude and remembrance act as a catalyst for further growth in, in Christ. And this is what we do when we come to celebrate the liturgy on a weekly basis. It becomes a way that we can show these qualities continually as a community. We remind ourselves that all we have is from God, and we offer it back to Him. We are constantly invited to offer not just the blessings we receive, but to entrust ourselves and one another and our whole life to Christ our God, as the liturgy says several times. Everything, the blessings, the, the unpleasant aspects of our lives, the difficulties, all of it. We remember the saving acts of God throughout history. The liturgy then acts as a forefeast of the banquet of the kingdom when Christ will fill all in all, again, as St. Paul says. And it helps to train us to love God more than anything else that we may be counted worthy to enjoy his presence. In conclusion, a recent podcast episode of the Lord of Spirits on the Eucharist, the priests put this interesting question. They said, if you would lose tomorrow what you didn't thank God for today, what would you have left? May we learn to live liturgically. And by that, I mean not just waiting for a Sunday, but every day and at all times trying to cultivate a lived remembrance of God 
and a thankfulness to him at all times. Going to somewhere like the monastery in Geelong and seeing Mother Calisteni walk about her veggie patch taught me this lesson. And she would bend down and pluck a lettuce leaf or some silver beet from her veggies. And even that simple and slight action was one that filled her with such gratitude to God. Everything can be made into an opportunity for communion. May we take the opportunity to use the blessings we receive as a means to come closer to God. Forgetfulness of God, ingratitude, the distractions of the lesser blessings, these things will cause us to lose the better portion, like Lancelot in the quest, weeping with bitter tears of remorse. In a country like Australia, we are drowning in material prosperity. May we not let the fulfillment of our earthly needs deprive us of acquiring Christ. May we not lose sight of the giver amid the countless gifts, so that at his great and second coming, we might be revealed, it might be revealed, that we have loved and desired him above all else. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Rejoice, O life-giving God.